Well, can you turn with me tonight in your Bible there, please, to the Gospel according to St. Matthew, and tonight we're in the 27th chapter. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. It's wonderful to see you uh, tonight in the service, and we thank you so much for coming. I want to thank the Crawford family for their ministry in song. It's been a real blessing, and we thank uh, Reverend McLaughlin again for his kind words of welcome. Matthew's Gospel chapter 27. And each uh, afternoon or evening, I send our brother Mark down at the back the text of Scripture and the title. And tonight's title is Simply Surveying the Wondrous Cross. And in the study this morning, as I was going through this message and looking at this portion of Scripture, I was thinking much about the words of the hymn that we've just been singing. When I survey the wondrous cross. And I was putting a text together. I was going to send it to Reverend McLaughlin and say, would you mind if we sang 480 tonight? And it was just about to hit send. And then I thought, no, I'll just leave it up to him and let the Lord lead and guide. And then before the service tonight, he just went through the hymns that he is going to be singing and 480 come up. And I just thought that was lovely. And I believe tonight that the Lord would have us to consider the cross. And I believe that the Lord is going to speak to hearts tonight. So let's just read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, and breaking into the chapter there at verse 26. Matthew 27 and verse 26, we're always on sacred ground whenever we come to the cross. And let's have no distractions as we read the Word of God together, and let's really consider what God is saying to us tonight. Matthew 27 and verse 26. Speaking of Pilate, then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, the place of the skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and the other on the left. We'll just end at verse 38, and we know God will bless the reading of his precious word. I want you to consider tonight the words that are found there in verse number 36 
of this account by Matthew of the crucifixion of our Savior. It's speaking about the Roman soldiers, and it simply says, sitting down, they watched him there. Sitting down, they watched him there, surveying the wondrous cross. Let's pray together. Let's invite the Lord to speak to our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee tonight once again for another time of singing Thy praise. We thank Thee for the ministry and song. We thank Thee, Lord, for the reading just now of Thy precious Word. And Lord, truly tonight we pray that the Holy Spirit will draw us to the Savior's feet. And in these moments, may we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Lord, Thou hast said in Thy Word that You've chosen the foolishness of preaching. And Lord, You've ordained that it's the preaching of the cross that God uses to save them that believe. And Lord, tonight we pray that You will melt our hearts, O Saviour. Bend us and break us down until we only conqueror and Lord and sovereign crown. Make us to understand it. Help us to take it in. What it meant for Thee, the Holy One, to bear away our sin. Grant the anointing and the infilling of the Spirit of God, and may the Son of God be exalted tonight, and may the presence of God fill this house. Speak to hearts, lead each individual at the point of need, glorify and exalt the man of Calvary, for it's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Here we have Matthew's wonderful and remarkable account of the crucifixion. And there's a little verse, as we have mentioned already, in verse number 36 in relation to it. And it simply says, concerning the Roman soldiers, and sitting down, they watched him there. This verse speaks about the day they crucified the Savior. And you know, tonight, the day they crucified the Lord was the greatest crime of humanity. Mankind has been guilty of some awful atrocities in the past. We could think about the various wars that have been conducted in the stage of world history, times of genocide and times of awful killing. We could think about the Holocaust. We could think about abortion. And these are tremendous crimes committed by humanity, man's inhumanity against his brother man. But far above all, I believe tonight, the day they nailed the Son of God to a cross was the greatest crime of humanity. Whenever the creature nailed the Creator to a cross outside of Jerusalem and cursed Him and spat upon His lovely face, was certainly the greatest crime of humanity. Whenever Peter was preaching in the day of Pentecost, he spoke about the Savior and said to the people of Jerusalem, Him being delivered, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and with wicked hands have crucified and slain. A remarkable thing, the Son of God coming into the world and the world nailing Him to a cross, despising Him and rejecting Him. And you know, tonight's society and the human heart has not really changed at all. I believe if the Son of God was in the world tonight physically, conducting the same ministry that he conducted 2,000 years ago, this world of ours would want to nail him to a cross again. 
There's something in the human heart that militates against the gospel and against the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says the carnal mind is enmity against God and is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Yes, the day they crucified the Savior, it was the greatest crime of humanity. But furthermore, it was also the greatest act of hostility. It wasn't just that they despised the Lord and wanted nothing to do with Him. It was how and when and where and why they crucified Him that showed their absolute hostility against the Son of God. In the face of incarnate love, in the face of divine truth, in the face of divine wisdom, in the face of unlimited grace and mercy, and holiness. This world of ours took the God-man Christ Jesus, and they stripped him naked of his garments. They crowned him with thorns. They made furrows upon his back. They plucked the hair out of his cheeks. They smote him with their fists, and then they kneeled him hand and foot to an old Roman cross. What an act of hostility. How they must have hated and despised the Son of God, Hear the dull blow of a hammer swung low. They are kneeling, kneeling, my Lord, to the tree. Not only was it the greatest crime of humanity and the greatest act of hostility, but it was also the greatest display of hypocrisy because the one that they were kneeling to the cross was the only sinless man that ever lived. He was the only perfect man that ever walked this earth. The Bible says he was holy, harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. The scripture says he did no sin. It says he knew no sin. He was without sin and in him was no sin. And yet they nailed him to a cross and they give him a violent criminal's death. He was crucified as a transgressor. Back there in the book of Deuteronomy chapter uh, 21 and verse number 22, it says, every man that has committed a sin worthy of death shall be put to death and shall be hung upon a tree. And cursed is every one that hangs upon a tree. And they nailed the Lord to a cross and they gave him the worst possible death because they counted him to be a great sinner, and yet he was sinless. And the ones who were nailing them to the cross, they were the sinners, and we tonight are sinful people, and we all had a part in it. It was our sins that held him there. He died on the cross for sinners, and all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. And not only was it the greatest crime of humanity and the greatest act of hostility and the greatest display of hypocrisy, but it was also the greatest disclosure of humility. In the Garden of Gethsemane, whenever the Lord had been praying in that dark night before he went to the cross, and the Roman soldiers came being led by the chief priests and Judas Iscariot at the front of the crowd. The Son of God said, Do not think that I could now, right now call, 12 legions of angels, and they would come and rescue me and destroy you. He could have called 72,000 angels right at that moment 
and they could have rescued him. But he laid down his life of himself. He said in John 10, No man takes it from me. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. And the Bible says he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But while it was the greatest crime of humanity and the greatest act of hostility and the greatest display of hypocrisy and the greatest disclosure of humility, the day they crucified my Savior was the greatest day in history. Because on the cross he bore our sins and he shed his precious blood and he opened a way back to God and a way whereby God could be just and God could cleanse us and forgive us and wash our sins away. And on that cross the Son of God secured the salvation of a great multitude which no man could number. And every Christian tonight can look back to the cross and testify that on the cross we were on his mind and our sins were upon him and there's hope and there's freedom and there's life and there's liberty and there's forgiveness and there's grace and there's mercy and there's all that we need tonight at the cross. And maybe you've never been to Calvary. Maybe you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've never responded to the gospel. I want tonight to challenge you to think about these things and not only to think about them, but to make that critical choice and to fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ because he's altogether lovely. The cross is the centerpiece of history. The cross work of our Savior is the center and the circumference of the teaching of the word of God. And yet we read in this little verse tonight, Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 36, that a military band, a group of Roman soldiers, having nailed the Lord to the cross, fulfilling their duty under Pontius Pilate, and their job now is almost done, the Bible simply says, and sitting down they watched him there. What a striking verse. And yet that same verse could be said of every single individual who has ever sat under the preaching of the gospel. Sitting down, they watched him there. The Bible opened tonight. The Son of God uplifted and exalted in Scripture. And we've been brought to the cross this evening. And each one of you, and maybe myself included, we're all sitting as it were. And we're looking tonight at the Savior. And we're watching Matthew's account of the crucifixion. And I want to ask you a very simple question. What does it mean to you? What does it accomplish in your heart tonight? Is your heart stirred? Is your heart melted? Are you moved at all to think about where you stand before God in light of the glorious cross? Isaac Watson, his great hymn said, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life my all. As we think about these men sitting at the foot of the cross, and as we think as well about ourselves, I want you to notice their unparalleled opportunity. An unrivaled or an unparalleled opportunity. What an opportunity was given to them as they sat at the cross and as they watched the Son of God 2,000 years ago on that cross, 
a bleeding spectacle, and yet incarnate deity and incarnate love. And they watched him there. What an opportunity. And what an opportunity has been given to you tonight. And what an opportunity is being afforded to the people of Carrie Duff in this day and in this generation. They, who were they? They were the Roman soldiers. Outside of the Jewish economy, they were Gentiles just like you and I. They, what were they doing? They were watching. They were surveying the wondrous cross. They were physically getting to behold with their naked eyes the greatest event in the history of the world whereby a holy God was redeeming and reconciling a sinful people unto himself. They watched him. Who were they watching? They weren't watching so much the thieves, the malefactors on either side. They weren't watching the crowd so much. They weren't watching the doctors of the law. They weren't watching each other. They were watching him the very Son of God Himself. And they watched Him there at Calvary, at the cross. And I wonder, did they read just above His head what it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. What a remarkable statement. The name Jesus means Savior. It was like they were reading a gospel text or a gospel tract. This is your Savior. This is the king of the Jews, and they, they maybe read the superscription. And as they watched him there, I'm sure undoubtedly, they heard him pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they listened to the Son of God praying, and they listened to the Son of God addressing his mother, and they listened to the Son of God addressing the disciple John, and they listened to the Son of God speaking to the, the penitent thief and saying, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. What an opportunity was given to them to see and to listen and to behold the Lamb of God on the cross bearing the sins of the world. What privileges they enjoyed. What an unrivaled and an unparalleled opportunity. And yet tonight God is giving you an opportunity to see something of the love and the grace and the mercy of the Son of God who Paul said loved us and gave himself for us. And some of you have been to Calvary many, many times before. You've been brought to the cross in the preaching of the Word. You've been brought to the cross and listening to the testimony of men and women and young people who have been converted. You've been brought to the cross as you've read your Bible. You've been brought to the cross maybe as you've read Christian literature. You've been brought to the cross as a loved one has prayed for you and witnessed to you. And you've been brought to the cross through countless messages in song. The Word of God has been opened. The Word of God has been expounded. The Word of God has been explained. The Son of God has been exalted. And you have been exhorted and pleaded with to come to the cross. And you have been given unparalleled opportunities. And some of you perhaps have heard the gospel dozens, scores, maybe even hundreds of times. And there are people in the world and they've never, never heard it once. What an unparalleled opportunity. God gives you tonight, just as these soldiers were given an unparalleled opportunity. But I also consider here tonight their unconcerned familiarity. They seem to be so unconcerned. 
They seemed to be so familiar with men being crucified. Maybe they had seen it dozens of times before. And this is just another day at the office, if you like. They're just doing their duty. They're just seeing to it that nothing is interfered with in these three men that are being crucified, especially the central one. Remain upon the cross until they expire and until they die. And they've become so, so familiar with this Roman form of execution that they almost seem to be unconcerned. And they're sitting, and the Word of God says in one of the other Gospels that they cast lots or they roll dice for his garments. And they're gambling at the foot of the cross. Gambling not just for the garments, but gambling even with their souls. And every once in a while, one of them might look up and look at the Savior. And then somebody gets their attention and they go back to the gambling. And then maybe another looks up as he groans or cries or, or prays or utters some profound words. And they're watching this, but they've become so, so familiar with it. They had seen crucifixions before. And sometimes it took hours, days, maybe even up to a week for the crucified individual to finally die. And maybe they just wanted it over and done with and they wanted them to die quickly so they could get home to their families and home to their, their dinner table once again. But they seemed, didn't they, to be so at ease with it all. They're not on their knees. They're not on their faces. They're not standing in awe and wonder. They're simply sitting, watching it take place, sitting down. They watched him there. Beloved, isn't it not true tonight to say that we have become very accustomed to hearing the Word of God? I have to lament that oftentimes I've become very accustomed to preaching it. And there's not the tear and the brokenness of heart that there ought to be. And we've become very, very familiar with the gospel, very familiar with the story of the cross. And I wonder tonight, does this ever really move us? Does this ever really melt us? Does it constrain us and compel us to love the Lord with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our mind and all of our strength? Does it bring her to her knees in wonder and adoration? Does it compel us to pray and to thank Him for saving us? Does it drive us to go out into a lost and broken and perishing world and tell others where they can be saved and where they can find forgiveness and where they can find mercy? Charles Haddon Spurgeon was often described as the prince of preachers. And in one of his great sermons that he preached, and it was written down, he made this remarkable statement as he addressed his great congregation in the, the Metropolitan Tabernacle London. He said, stand at the foot of the cross and count the purple drops by which you have been cleansed. See the thorn crown." Mark his scourged shoulders, still gushing within crimson rills. And if you do not lie prostrate on the ground before that cross, then you have never seen it at all. You've never seen it at all. Sitting down, they watched him there, but it didn't melt them and it didn't move them. As that would we have become so accustomed to the gospel like Jeremiah who cried out, is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Does it not even melt the hearts of God's people? You know, sometimes Christians wonder why the unconverted have no real interest in the gospel. But maybe the unconverted look at us and they think, well, sure, you've hardly any interest 
in the gospel. You never speak about the Savior. There's never a tear in your heart whenever you think about the lost. I remember a man saying to me that if he, if he believed what I believed, he says, I couldn't sleep until my family were saved if I really believed what you believed. He says, I would crawl for miles on my hands and knees to bring them to the cross if I really believed what you believed. You know, whenever revival broke out in Wales in 1904, it seemed to have a very deep and lasting and profound effect, especially upon the younger generation. One night there was an old Welsh preacher, his name was Joseph Jenkins. He was addressing a meeting like this, just something similar to this meeting that we're sitting in, midweek meeting, maybe 50 or 60 people gathered in, all young people, and he was preaching about the cross, and halfway through his message he stopped and he says, young people, I want to ask you a question. What does Jesus Christ mean to you? And he stopped, he was wanting a literal answer. And there was silence. He says, now I want you to answer the question, what does Jesus Christ mean to you? And a young man put his hand up and said, Mr. Jenkins, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And Mr. Jenkins says, that is right. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the Son of God. But that's not what I ask. I ask, what does Jesus Christ mean to you? And then there was silence and a young lady, a young teenage girl by the name of Florrie Evans stood up and she just simply said, I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of my heart. And there was something about the feeling and the emotion that she said it with that there was just a, a real sense of the presence of God and those young people were melted in God's presence. And that was one of the links in the chain that brought the blessing of heaven down into a community, just as God was on the brink of sending revival. Is there somebody here tonight, and you can say in your heart, I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of my heart. Oh, tonight that you'd be able to say that. I see tonight these people sitting down, watching them there, their unparalleled opportunity, their unconcerned familiarity, but I also see their unsettling austerity. They're unsettling austerity. And by austerity, I mean hardness. And by unsettling, I mean concerning. There's a concerning hardness about these people sitting at the foot of the cross. They're sitting and they're watching, but their hearts seem to be so hard and, and so callous. Here's a man who's done nothing amiss. Even Pilate said that. He says, I find no fault in this man. This man has done nothing amiss. And they heard Pilate say it. And they couldn't bring any accusations against him themselves. And, and they seemed to sit there and their hearts have become so, so hard. And they're so austere. And they're not really melted or moved at all. And yet it was their greatest display of love and mercy that God had ever brought to the face of this earth the day the Savior died, and yet sometimes our hearts, don't they become so, so hard? Proverbs 29, 1 says, He that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. The Scripture says in Ephesians 4, 19, that you can become past feeling. The Reverend Samuel Workman was a tremendous pastor and a tremendous evangelist. 
Hundreds and hundreds were brought to the Savior's feet and brought into the kingdom through the ministry of the Reverend Samuel Workman. I remember having the privilege of listening to him preach in person different occasions. Remember he came to Lisburn and the Christian Workers' Union 23 years ago. Remember sitting beside him in the prayer meetings before the services and what a privilege to listen to this man of God pray and then listen to him preach. And he used to say that as a young boy between his house and his school there was an old blacksmith shop and sometimes on the way to or the way from school he would stand at the door and he would look in if the door is opening wanting to see what the blacksmith was making. He says one day on the way home from school I I, I watched, the door was wide open and I stood at the door with my head around the corner and I looked at this huge big blacksmith with his big leather apron and his big boots and he put the tongs into the furnace and he pulled out a piece of white hot iron and took his hammer and went over to the anvil and began to fashion a horseshoe. And he says the steel went in and out of the furnace and Eventually, the horseshoe was almost finished, and he says, I watched him looking at it, and he was pleased with it, and it it had changed color. It was no longer white hot or yellow or orange or even red or cherry. He says it had just gone a dull black color. He says the blacksmith reached out his hand and took the horseshoe and lifted it out of the tongs and set it on the floor. We Sammy Workman says, I wanted to go in. He was only a lad at school. And he says, I wanted to get a closer look. And I reached out my hand and I lifted the horseshoe and it, it was piping hot. And he says, I squealed like a stuck pig. He says, the blacksmith come over and lifted the horseshoe again and looked at it and threw it on the floor. And he smiled at me. And he says, foolishly, I reached out with my left hand this time and tried to touch it again. And my hand now was smarting and I had to plunge them into the cold water. And he turned around that blacksmith and he says, how can you do that? And he says, he just held out his big hands. He says, his hands were like leather. He says, they were rough and they were coarse and they were calloused. And he said, year upon year of working with his hands in the blacksmith shop, shoeing horses and all that goes with it, he says, his hands had become almost like leather. He says you could have stuck sharp nails into them and pricked them with, with thorns. He says, he wouldn't have felt a thing. Hands that were once tender like mine had become so hard and so calloused that they were almost past feeling. And Sam Workman says that can happen to us with the gospel. Whenever we're young and our hearts are soft and tender, or maybe we sit in gospel meetings, we can become troubled and concerned about our souls. And then consciously we harden our hearts. And we say no to Jesus Christ. And we shrug off the conviction where, like Saul, we kick against the pricks so we can become almost punch drunk and we can sit under the sound of the gospel and we can hear about the glories of heaven and the the horrors of hell and the need for repentance and the vileness of sin and the loveliness of Christ and the call to be born again. And it doesn't affect us at all. The willful hardening of the heart Four times the Bible says, today if you will hear his voice, then harden not your hearts. I read in the book years ago about a young pastor in the Church of England many, many years ago. He was just arriving in the parish and he was conducting some visits around some of the families and one late night he went to a farmhouse and he wrote in his journal after it, he says, you know, the the father was a kindly man and He brought me to the door of the home after I'd been there for maybe an hour and I'd read and prayed with the family. He says, the father of the house was showing me out and he said to me these words at the door. He says, young man, thank you so much for your visit. 
I hope and pray that it won't be your last. But let me give you some advice. Devote all of your labors to the young and leave us old people alone. He said, 40 years ago I was anxious about my soul. Many were then converted, but I was not one of them. I have not had a single feeling since that time. I know I am a lost sinner. I know I can only be saved through Jesus Christ. If I die, I am lost. I believe everything that you preach, but I feel it no more than if I were a block of marble. I expect to die as I live. Leave us to ourselves and our sins and devote your strength to saving the youth. That young pastor said, I watched his progress. His seat was rarely vacant, but he was a true prophet of his own fate. He lived as he predicted and so died. We laid him down to last in a hopeless grave in the midst of a congregation over whom God had so often opened the windows of heaven. Hearts can become hard. Don't harden your heart tonight against the call of God. I see these men sitting at the cross. I also see their unwise triviality. They were sitting, talking, gambling, casting lots for his garments. And there they were, and they were watching a man suffer. They were watching a sufferer. The Bible says Christ hath once suffered for sins. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. He was every inch a man. He felt it when they put that crown of thorns upon his brow. He felt it acutely whenever they smote him with that reed. He felt it whenever they clenched their fists and punched him in the face. He felt it whenever they scourged his back and the flesh was being torn from his ribs. He felt it whenever they drove the nails through his hands and through his feet. He felt it whenever they lifted up that cross and they dropped it into that hole in the ground. They were watching a sufferer. But they were also watching a sovereign. Because written above the cross was the word king. And there's coming a day whenever every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. They were also watching a substitute because he died to just for the unjust. He had no sins of his own, but he died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And they were also watching a Savior. Thou shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And they probably saw him turning around that penitent thief and saying, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And maybe you know tonight that the Son of God suffered. And you know tonight that he's King of kings and Lord of lords. And you know tonight that he died as a substitute upon a cross. And you know tonight that he's the only Savior. And like these Roman soldiers, you can look at people that you know and people that you love. And the Lord has saved them and the Lord has delivered them. And what an assurance that penitent thief got whenever the Lord assured him that there was a place in heaven for him. And maybe you sit in a home and you share a bed or you share a table or you share a living room. You share a house with someone and they're converted. And their testimony is consistent. And they love the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've seen the reality often in their life. And you just sit and you watch and you look on. And if Jesus Christ was come back tonight, you'd be separated from them forever. Were they not so foolish? Were they not so trivial? 
It seemed that they didn't really take much account of who he was. It seems that they didn't really take much account of what was happening. And it seems they didn't really take much account of why it was happening at all. Even the supernatural, the three hours of intense darkness didn't seem to change them. You know, sometimes people say to me, well, if God revealed himself physically and visibly, I would believe in him. If God did some great miracle, I would believe in him. If somebody came back from the dead, that's what the rich man said in Luke 16, they would believe. But beloved, tonight, if the cross does not melt your heart, if the word of God does not bring you to your knees, if the gospel record of the Son of God dying on the cross for sinners does not melt your heart and does not cause you to believe and turn them from your sin and trust this wonderful Savior, I humbly say to you tonight, there's nothing in all the world that will bring you to God if it doesn't happen through the cross. Such love, pure as the whitest snow. Such love, weeps for the shame I owe. Such love, paying the debt I owe, O oh Jesus. Such love. One last thought and we're finished. We thought about their unparalleled opportunity, their unconcerned familiarity, their unsettling austerity, their unwise triviality. But what about their unending eternity? These men that are sitting at the cross and they're watching the Savior 2,000 years ago, where are they tonight? Where are they right now? You know, I believe that in all likelihood, many of them got converted. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, 47, we read about about the conversion of the centurion. Truly, this was a, a righteous man. But friends, if they saw it, and they were there, and they heard the Lord's word, and they saw the Lord's word, and they read it, and they, they saw the Savior die, but they never came to trust Him. They never came to believe in Him. They'll be lost forever. What must it be to leave this scene of time, having sat under the word of God and sat under the gospel times without number, and to open your eyes in a lost eternity, and to know the truth, and to know that you're lost forever. Last week in one of the meetings, a young girls group sang that lovely, lovely song, Where Will You Be 100 Years From Now? Where will you be five minutes after you die? Where will you be a million years from tonight? Sitting down, they watched him there. Peter said concerning the Bible, we have a more sure word of prophecy. There's power tonight in the word of God and there's sufficiency in the word of God to really set you free and change you forever. Donald Barnhouse was a great preacher from Philadelphia. He ministered in the 10th Presbyterian Church in the great city of brotherly love. He was about six foot five and he had a figure to match it. He was well named because he was literally built like a barnhouse door. You can still buy his books and still get hold of his commentaries and still hear some of his preaching. One day a little lady came to him and she says, Mr. Barnhouse, I want to tell you that my husband has got saved. We've been praying for him for years and Mr. Barnhouse was delighted and he went to the wee man's house 
Knocked his door during the week and the man came to the door and there's Donald Barnhouse standing. Mr. Barnhouse says, is it true that you've got saved? And the wee man smiled and says, it is. And Mr. Barnhouse threw his arms around him in a big hug and lifted him up off the ground and spun him around and squeezed him so tight that he broke several of his ribs. He just got a little bit too excited. But you remember Donald Barnhouse was young, a teenager. He was brought up in a Christian home, brought up in a gospel preaching church, prayed the sinner's prayer many times, but never really had assurance of salvation. And one night a man came to the church and gave his testimony. And during the testimony, the man made it very clear that he was absolutely sure and absolutely certain that all his sins were forgiven and that he was going to heaven. And that teenage boy, Donald, went to him after the meeting and said, sir, I need to speak to you. I've been brought up in a good home and I've been brought up in this church and I've read my Bible from my earliest days and I, I believe everything that the Bible says. And I've prayed many times that God will save me and forgive me, but I just can't seem to get it together. I just can't seem to get the assurance that you have. Maybe my faith isn't strong enough. Maybe I haven't really repented enough. Maybe I don't believe enough. Maybe I'm not performing well enough. All these questions that many Christians can struggle with. And that wise preacher says, Donald, hold out your hands. And he held out his two hands. And then he took a hymn book and he, he placed it over one of Donald's hands and says, Donald, let's just suppose that this hymn book represents all of your sin. And it's your sin. You've committed it. You're responsible for it. You're underneath it. And whenever God looks down on this world and he sees men and women without Christ, he sees them under his condemnation and in their sin. But he says, this other hand is empty. There's no sin in it and there's no sin on it. But whenever the Bible says that he suffered the just for the unjust and he died for our sins, the Son of God who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Our sins were placed upon him. Now he says, Donald, if Jesus Christ has taken your sin, where is it? He says, well, it must be on him and nailed to his cross. He says, all of it or just some of it? And he says, well, all of it. And if you're believing in that and trusting in that, what does that mean? He says, it means that the Son of God has taken all my sins. And the truth of that old hymn came to burn his heart. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. I'm asking you tonight in the closing moments of this meeting, what about you? And what about your sin tonight? That sin will take you to a lost eternity. It might destroy your life first, but certainly it'll find you out in God's eternity. Why not come to the cross tonight? Come to this wonderful Savior with arms wide open. He'll pardon you. It's no secret what God can do. He's able to save to the uttermost. All that come unto God by home. Don't just sit and watch. Don't just sit and listen. But respond to the call of God. Put your trust in this Savior. Give him your heart and give him your life. If we can help you, if we can pray with you, that's why we're here. May God bless you tonight. God loves you. Don't ever forget that. And you respond in your heart to the call of God tonight. Let's just pray. The meeting's over. Time is well gone. And we do apologize for keeping you a few minutes later tonight. But let's just pray together. And even where you sit, 
And while you sit there, if God has spoken even into your heart tonight and you want to come to Christ, why not just where you are? Just say as Peter said all of those years ago, Lord, save me. Or maybe you've grown cold. Pray that the Lord will restore you. Tell him that you're coming to him tonight afresh and he'll receive you. Why not call upon the Lord now? Trust him. And if you do and if you have, tell somebody about that and it'll settle it in your heart. But we're your servants for Christ's sake and we'll help you any way we can.